The title of the message is Power in a Prayer of Faith. Power in a Prayer of Faith. Five or ten years ago, we had gotten home from church. I think it was a Sunday evening, and we pulled in, and we went in the house, and we kind of went to our separate rooms, and April and I were in our room just, yeah, right after we got back, and and there was a, a thump in the girl's room, and, and we heard the two-year-old start wailing a bit, but then it quickly subsided, and, and so we didn't think a whole lot about it. I did, I did, I did think about it. I remember thinking about that, you know, this, this crying, it sounded, it sounded bad initially, but then it went away pretty quickly. And so, you know, it's just, these things happen. And, uh, so we were, yeah, no, no alarm, didn't make any moves until Whitney comes carrying this, what, was kind of obviously, seemingly a lifeless child, two-year-old, into our room and said, Mom, she's not breathing. And very clearly, we saw that she wasn't. There was no breath. Um, she was just, she looked like she was just gone. And, of course, if you find yourself in that scenario, you, you would only understand that we would grasp for something quickly like just there, we, we need something and there's desperation I mean we don't have time we can't we can't just sit around and decide for 10 minutes what we should do we, we just it's not something we just well once Monday morning hits then we'll consider what needs to happen I mean there's desperation now there's urgency and so that's where we found ourselves and as as April held her in her arms and just and shook her and tried to bring some some life, tried to wake up. What's happening? What's going on? Why, why is this? Um, and nothing happened. And it didn't take long. Put her down on the floor and just, and again, just and started pressing on her chest and, and shaking her and calling her name and trying to, trying to bring life. There's got to be life. Where did life go? What happened? There was desperation. And, I, and immediately I'm thinking to myself, well, I can call the ambulance, but we don't have 15 minutes. It's just there's no hope there to call an ambulance and have an ambulance get there. And, you know, it, I, I knew it's just going to be 15 minutes before the ambulance gets there. So that seemed sort of, sort of hopeless. But pretty quickly we, we found ourselves, and, and we knew that time had passed from the time we had heard the crying. And, and we knew by this time, I mean, now, you know, I know that time, it seemed like 15 minutes, but, I, you know, I think, you know, two minutes would probably be more accurate. But time's running out, and we start seeing some blue, and we start, and, and there's still no life. And we, we found ourselves crying out to God out loud in the situation and say, God, help us. We need you. God, bring, bring life into this child. What can we do? How can we, how, is there any hope? Is there any hope? After doing that, I decided, well, I, I, I mean, I might as well call the ambulance. I mean, I, I you know, I, it, it seemed like the, the only next right thing to do. So I did that. And thankfully, it was soon after I, maybe as I was hanging up with the ambulance, and I don't know, by this time, you know, there had been no breath for, I, I, I've said maybe three minutes. It, it's, it's just hard. I really wish I knew, actually. But that all of a sudden, there was 
a, a slight something that came out of her lips, a, a little whimper, a little a slight breath, a little movement, something that said that there's life there. And we all of a sudden had hope. And, 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 the, and, then, she, and then there was, there, was, there was a little bit more and a little bit more. And slowly we saw light come back into her eyes and we saw breath come back into her lungs and, and, we, and we felt like there is hope after all. Prayer, power in a prayer of faith. I imagine some of you have found yourselves in, in similar situations, um, desperation of some sort, where you, you felt all hope was gone. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be reading from 2 Chronicles 20. You can turn to 2 Chronicles 20, that's my passage. Over the last several years, going to Bible school has been a good experience for me. And especially, especially the first, I think it especially hit me maybe the second year, dealing with, dealing with some things. And the realization of the power of prayer was impressed upon me again as we, as we moved through decisions, as we moved through different scenarios that we knew nothing about. And as we, as we ran into these things and we had no answers, what do we do? There were several times that I realized fully that I had no capacity within myself to fix what was broken, to correct what was wrong, or heal who was hurting. I simply could not do it on my own. I had no capacity to do anything. As badly as I wanted to, I was helpless. I also realized that if I tried my quick, logical answers, I could take a bad situation and make it a whole lot worse. I felt the keen awareness that I needed God. My only hope to move forward in a way that could bring healing, take the broken pieces to make something, <clears throat> to make something special and make something right that seemed destined to be wrong was to seek the face of, face of God. My only help was to recognize the giver of life, the healer, the righteous one. I had to plead for the blood of Jesus, for the power of God and his angels to move. I begged God that the gates of hell would not prevail in the battle we found ourselves in. I knew God is more powerful than anything else. We know that, right? But is he involved in and care about what is happening right now? I know he is and can do all things, but will he? We sing the song sometimes. Maybe, uh, maybe you sing it at vacation Bible school or something like that. I'm in the Lord's army, but do we, really, do we really live like it? Do we really consider that I'm in the Lord's army, which obviously means we're in a battle? Am I really aware of this reality? So God never abandons his people, although it may feel like it. He's always there, and especially when we're actively engaged in the Lord's battle. God cares and knows. This is emphasized in Psalm 139. Maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll, I'll read some of one, well, Psalm 139. 
It speaks of God knowing us inside and out in every, in every way. And there's nowhere we can go to hide from God. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. We know that verse. Um, down in verse, uh, verse 13. Thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Do we really, do we really know that? Do, can, we, can we really grasp that? My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which, is continu- which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How precious also... Are thy thoughts unto me, O God? How great is the sum of them? If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, from me, therefore, ye bloody men. For they speak against thee wickedly, and thine enemies. Take thy name in vain. Consider that take thy name in vain thing does not, I don't think it means so much using God's name in vain with our mouth, okay, so I think it, it, that applies, but take thy name in vain, and we can go back to the Ten Commandments, but and this is a whole other message, but take thy name in vain, I think, has more to do with how we carry God's name. If I'm a professing Christian and I say, I, I'm a Christian, I carry God's name with me everywhere I go, everything I do, everything I say, every aspect of my life is carrying God's name, but if I don't live like it, then I'm carrying God's name in vain. So how I live has more to do with taking God's name in vain if I don't live right than necessarily just a, a word or two that I might say. Verse 21. Do not I hate them, O Lord, that hate thee, and am not I grieved with, with those that rise up against thee. I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. And then the last two verses are very familiar verses, but just... We should, we should be able to sincerely, in humility, cry out with these, with these verses, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. God knows every aspect of us, who we are. I'm going to, before I... Before I read Second uh, Chronicles 20, I'm going to also just point out a verse. This is, and we're thinking about the power of God and who God is and how desperately we, how desperately we need him and how desperate he wants us to know that we need him. And, and how, where is God? Where do, we, where do we find God? How can I experience the power of God? And I love Isaiah 57, verse 15. Just, I, I, don't, I don't think we could really, I don't think we can really hardly grasp this. Isaiah 15, verse, Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. Okay, so that just blew our minds. The high and lofty one which inhabiteth eternity. Well, we don't even know what eternity really is. We can't grasp that. Our minds clock out pretty quickly. And yet, God has all that wrapped up within himself. So therefore, comprehending the power and greatness of God is, well, we just, we really can't start. Right? Just understand where that puts God. Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, 
And he says, I dwell in a high and holy place. That makes sense. I, I mean, clearly a God like that would, dwi- would dwell in a high and holy place. We would, we would understand that, okay? And then he says, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. That's absolutely phenomenal. If we could, if we could really grasp that, that God dwells in a high and holy place, a God that inhabits eternity, and he made the stars also, just a small thing for God, and yet he wants to dwell within each and every one of our hearts to give us power that we can hardly really fathom. We have to understand that the power of God is far beyond anything we could, we could possibly think. Okay, 2 Chronicles 20. So I want to speak about Jehoshaphat and what, he, and what he did, and we want to pull some lessons from this chapter that, that of who Jehoshaphat was. Jehoshaphat was Asa's son. Asa was a, a good king. The Bible speaks well of him. He was not perfect. There was some mess-ups in his life, but he was a, a good king. The Bible speaks well of him. Jehoshaphat followed in his steps and, and was a good king as well, although we see some, some struggles in Jehoshaphat's life as well. But Jehoshaphat, the Bible speaks well of him. He served the Lord. 2 Chronicles 20, and I'm going to read a, a majority of the, uh, of the chapter. So let's, uh, let's read 2 Chronicles 20. And it came to pass... After this also, that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon, and with them other beside the Ammonites, came against Jehoshaphat to battle. So we're, 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 we're coming, we got a battle coming on here. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There cometh a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea on this side Syria, and behold, they be in Hazazon Tamar, which is Engedi, and Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven? And rollest not thou over all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thine hand is there not power and might so so that none is able to withstand thee? Jehoshaphat knew the power of God, but he was just having this conversation with God, like, God, this is, this is you, right? He understood, he understood who God was. Verse 7, art, thou, art not thou our God, who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and gavest it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? And they dwelt therein, and have built thee a sanctuary therein for thy name, saying, If when evil cometh upon us, as the sword, judgment, and pestilence, or pestilence, or famine, we stand before this house and in thy presence. For thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction. Then thou wilt hear and help. And now, behold, the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, which that, whom thou wouldest not let Israel invade, when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned not from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they... Behold, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. 
He's, he's telling God, God, remember, I mean, he's kind of going back and doing some review here. So here's the scenario. And now, you know, they weren't destroyed. You didn't let us go in and destroy them. And now they're coming against us to destroy us. That's kind of the reward. The reward they're given for us not destroying them, their reward for that, their thanks, is, is destroying us. What a wonderful thanks. Verse 11, behold, I say how they, okay, I read verse 12. Oh, our God, will thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. And all Judah stood before the, the Lord with their little ones, their wives and their children. Then upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeel, the son of Madaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, came the Spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. And he said, Hearken ye all, Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. And thou, King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid, nor dismayed, by reason of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and ye shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites and the children of the Kohathites and the children of the Korites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. And they rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear, hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God, so shall ye establish, be established. Believe his prophets, so shall ye prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord. And that should and that should praise the beauty of holiness as they went out before the army, and to say, Praise the Lord, for his mercy endureth forever. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord set an ambush against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which, they, which were come against Judah, and they were smitten. And the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, utterly to slay and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, everyone helped to destroy another. And when Judah came, to, came toward the watchtower in the wilderness, they looked unto the multitude, and behold, they were dead bodies fallen to the earth, and none escaped. And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away the spoil of them, they found among them in abundance both riches with the dead bodies and precious jewels, which they stripped off for themselves more than they could carry. And they were three days in gathering of the spoil. It was so much. And on the fourth day they assembled themselves in the valley of Baraka, for there they blessed the Lord. Therefore the name of the same place was called the Valley of Baraka unto this day. Then they returned every man of Judah in Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat in the forefront of them to go again to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. And they came to Jerusalem with psalteries and harps and, and trumpets unto the house of the Lord. And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they had heard that the Lord fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for God gave him rest round about. And Jehoshaphat reigned over Judah. He was thirty and five years old when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty and five years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Azubah, the daughter of 
Shalai. I'm going to stop there. It says next verse that he did, he did, he followed in the ways of God, and he did, he did right. So just a uh, just a, a really impactful story when we stop and, and think about it. And I want to pull a few points out to um, to just consider what Jehoshaphat did, and to learn some lessons and make application to our own lives. The first thing we see in verse three. Okay, well we could go first before that, but so there was there was a battle. We can recognize we can recognize there was a battle coming up. There was there was a problem. There was there was a fight, a battle coming up. The enemy was coming against Jehoshaphat. The enemy was coming against Jehoshaphat. So, but skipping to verse three, Jehoshaphat feared. So we all face an enemy. If if you if you don't experience that, well, you you do. Maybe you just don't know it, or or you uh, you need to you need to recognize that somehow. Maybe maybe uh, maybe you're. Anyway, yeah, we all have an enemy. As Christians, we all have an enemy. So Jehoshaphat, as the enemy came up against him, he feared. So fear, why did he, why did he fear? We all have fears. We're engaged in a battle if we, if we are actively seeking to advance the kingdom of God. If you're not, if, they're not, if there's not a battle, well, maybe you're not actively engaged. You need to jump in. So we're engaged in a battle if we're actively seeking to advance the kingdom of God. Picture a battle. Consider the days of old. So in Jehoshaphat's day, in days going by, you can think about what a battle looked like versus what it might look like today, um, what our wars might look like today. But in the days of old, you can think of the front lines. Consider the reality of the front lines. The front, front lines were very deadly. And so, obviously, Jehoshaphat would fear, right? I mean, verse three, and Jehoshaphat feared. He, he, it was just, a, it was a, it was a natural reaction. I mean, we can't fault him for that. Um, God doesn't. We don't see any signs that God faulted him for that. But consider the battle. Consider the front lines. You either come out a victorious hero. Or dead. That's kind of your two options when you go out in the front lines in, in, in the old times here. And as we consider, as we consider our, our own spiritual lives, kind of the same scenario. When David ordered Uriah to the front lines in 2 Samuel eleven fifteen, and he wrote in a letter saying, Set you Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him that he may be smitten and die. It was a very deliberate thing. He knew, David knew very clearly what was going to happen. There was no guessing. He didn't say, well, I hope things work out. Uriah dies. He knew that if he's in the front line of the battle all by himself, he's dead. It's the game over. That's the way it is for us. This was a sure way for Uriah's death. Send him out there alone. For us today, as Christians engaged in the battle that we find ourselves in, the battle of the army of God, when we engage alone, when we go out to the forefront of the battle alone, we can expect death. 
Don't let others around you go out alone. Don't send them out alone. Never put anyone within your army alone. A devastating spot. You can expect death when that happens. If there's not death, if there's just serious injury, count your blessings and surround them. Do not send them out alone. But Jehoshaphat feared. So we can have that response. It's okay. His response. But let's see his next response. Number two, Jehoshaphat sought God and asked for help. We see that in the rest of verse three and four. Immediately, so he feared, but his, his reaction wasn't to do something that he drums up in and of himself, his own power. It says, and right away, and set himself to seek the Lord. His first immediate response was a good response. Set himself to seek the Lord and proclaim a fast throughout all Judah. And then look at the response of the people. They gathered themselves. But is that my response? When I'm facing a battle, when I sense a battle that I'm facing within my brotherhood, when we face a battle, do we immediately, what's my immediate response? Do I try to do something in and of myself or do we immediately, like Jehoshaphat, set himself to seek the Lord and proclaim a fast? Is that our response? If it's not, we can expect trouble. He realized it was bigger than himself. He knew he didn't have enough wisdom on his own. Matthew 21, 22, And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. I think we struggle with that verse. I mean, we know it. Yeah, it's a familiar verse, but do I really, do I really get it? The high and holy one that inhabits eternity, he wants to dwell in my heart, but it requires contrite humbleness. Reminds me of something that Philip Martin said at our revival meetings just the other week. He said, humility is the platform for grace. So he talked about, he talked about blowing something up and how that he watched something blow up and it had such incredible force that it was on a six-inch concrete pad, like a, I pictured a, you know, I don't know if he said the exact size, but, you know, maybe a, six foot by six foot by six inch thick. I remember him saying six inch thick concrete pad and it was such force. I forget how high it went in the air, but anyway, such force when it blew up, it just shattered the concrete pad, just, just broke it into pieces because there was such power there, such force. God's grace is so powerful that unless we have a concrete pad of humility, we will be shattered. I thought that was tremendous. Humility is, is the, the foundation for God's grace. And I've thought about it many times that I want God's grace in my life, but, but can I handle it? Like, can I just handle maybe just a very little small part? Like, what can I handle? What does my concrete pad look like of humility and, and, and a broken and contrite heart? What does that look like? Is it, is it four inches thick? Is it, is, it, is it a foot thick? Is it, what does it look like? Anyway, getting distracted. Adam Clark says, in order to get salvation, to get answers, there must be a conviction of the one of it. We must desire it greatly. John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. Do we really grasp that? 
Mark 6. I, I, love, I love the passage in Mark 6, verses 5 and 6, where Jesus, it says, actually, I think I can turn. Maybe I won't bother turning there. It, it says that Jesus did no mighty works there because of their lack of belief. They did not believe. They did not want to believe. And so it says Jesus just, he shook his head and he walked away and he did no mighty works there. And I think that's so huge. And how many times in my life does God want to do an amazing, powerful thing that's just a very small act for God, and yet to us it would be phenomenal because of, of the restriction that I bring. I am the one that has the capacity to restrict God. God wants to do powerful things in my life. Do I allow him? Moving on to, uh, to number three. Jehoshaphat asked others to seek God with him, verses three to five. And we see, we see um, some of that ver- jump, jumping into, um, well, verse three, the fast that he proclaimed, and then jumping into verse four. All Judah and Judah gathered themselves together to ask of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. These people, and Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation Judah and, of Judah and of Israel in the house of the Lord. So they all came together. They all came together. So it wasn't just something Jehoshaphat did alone. He didn't just, I mean, so he, he did that as well. He, he did it, but he also asked others to seek God with him. Remember, never go alone. We need others. We need the brotherhood. Never let someone else go alone. And like I said before, picture yourself in the forefront of the battle. You won't survive. Picture letting someone else in the front of the battle alone by themselves. They won't survive. It's devastating. David was very clear when he went out alone to meet Goliath that he was not going out alone. There was no questions as to who was dead in that battle. It was clearly going to be David. David was the only, there was only one option there. It was very obvious. Nobody second guessed that one. David was dead except that he didn't go alone. He went with God, and so David was very deliberate. He, he, he had to proclaim it. He had to say it, because had, had he, had there been any implication that he would have tried to do it alone, he had not a chance in the world. When we don't pray for our brothers or sisters, we are, we are allowing them to engage in the battle alone. We individually should never choose to, look, to go alone. But we must also be careful that we never let someone else on the battlefield alone. I must seek God and I must seek assistance from his people. We could consider the story of Peter in Acts 12 when Peter was was kept in prison. But prayer was made without ceasing, it says, um, of the church unto God for him. And I always, get a, I always get a chuckle out of verse 16 then in that same passage where when Peter came knocking, you know, God did a powerful thing and Peter came knocking and they said, no, 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 it's not, it's not Peter. I mean, clearly it's, it's not him. Well, obviously they had some faith. I mean, it, their prayers worked and yet, uh, and yet they were pretty human. We see the humanness coming out. When you pray in faith, expect astonishing things. I remember Keith Kreider saying a number of years ago that when he prays, he prays expectantly. 
You know, sometimes we can bring prayers to God and we just, you know, we say our prayers. But do we expect, do I fully expect that something will happen? I think God wants to move every single time. Like, I don't think that to, to just to just pray and say, well, you know, God, I, I, yeah, I think I know you can, but, you know, pray expectantly. What do I expect when I pray? Again, point number three, never let Peter in jail alone on the front of the battle. Josaphat asked others to seek God with him. The next point, Jehoshaphat questioned God, verifying his belief in him. And we see this in verses 6 and 7. He questioned God, verifying his belief in him. So you could say, well, Jehoshaphat, he's saying, well, God, isn't this you? I mean, should we question God? Is it okay to question God? I think we have to be careful how we're questioning God. Are we questioning God in belief, in faith? Or am I questioning God, doubting God? Like, God, I don't, I don't think, I, I, no, that's not, or like Thomas, no, no, that's, that can't happen. Or are we questioning God, verifying a belief? Like, God, I know this is you. God, isn't this you? Show yourself strong in my life. God, I, I, I know this is you. I want to, I want to see you. I want to, I want to, I, I believe that you can. I believe that this is you. Sometimes it's simply, okay to acknowledge our frailty by honestly and with a pure heart ask God, ask our great God who he really is. God, you know I'm struggling now. Show me. This is you, isn't it? God, am I in your battle or am I off trying to do my own thing? God, I don't, that's not where I want to be. I want to be, be in your battle. God, isn't this your work that you started a long time ago, before I was even really a part of it. God, isn't, isn't, this, isn't this you? Isn't this where we're at? Isn't this what we're talking about? God, you can and will continue your plan if I am submitted to you, right? God, remember back there, remember, remember my dad and, and mom and, and, and when, they were, when they were 19 and, and, and got my, my grandma and grandpa, I remember they, they had stories and they were... They were strong in you and, and and God back in years gone by our, our forefathers and 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 in the in the New Testament God your disciples and, and in the Old Testament the way you worked with your people God this is still the same you right I mean this is this is you all along now it's you're not working with Abraham and, and Daniel and, and Job and, and and not the Apostle Paul and and, and John and Peter not my grandpa, but God, now it's, now it's me. Now it's me. God, you've done all these things and these people, and God, now you want to work through me. Is, is that right? Am I, am I right? Is, is this what you're doing, God? I think it's okay to, to bring our, our questions, our struggles. He remembereth that we are dust. This is God. He remembereth that we are dust. We can bring our questions. We can, we can just in our own smallness try to understand God and what he has done in the past. And we see Jehoshaphat doing that. He went back and he, and he talks about days going by. And he says, God, you're not going to stop your work now. God, don't, don't let your work fail with me. You've been doing it throughout all these generations. I, I don't, don't let me be the dead end. 
God can somehow, in my smallness, in my inability, can you, can you allow it to continue on? God, I'm willing to be a part of it. Don't let it stop now. Jehoshaphat questioned God, verifying his belief in him. It solidifies what we're doing and who we are and why we're here and why we're engaged in the battle when we can recognize, you know what, it's not mine. It's not about me. It's been God all along, and it's still God. And the only way we're going to continue going forward is because it's going to be God ongoing. And if he can use my life, glory to him. Number five, Jehoshaphat considered what God had done and said in the past. And I've already alluded to this, and we see this in verses 7 to 10. He, he, he looked back. He referenced the temple Solomon built. He said, God, this is, this is you. This was 100 plus years before. So this was somewhat more recent history. But he referenced that. Um, verse 9, he recalls verse 37 in, in 1 Kings, and we won't turn to there, but he's, he's referencing things back, and we've already talked about that. But he considered what God had done and said in the past. I think it behooves us and does us well to consider what God has done in the past, whether it was 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago or maybe just a year ago or maybe just last week. God has done these things. Who am I to think that God would not continue today and tomorrow? Can I pray expectantly? Number six, Jehoshaphat acknowledged his need and where his confidence was. We see that in verse 12. He said, O our God, wilt thou not judge them? God, won't you take care of the enemies? God, you'll do this. For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. And I like that. Just an acknowledgement that, you know what? In and of myself, I'm done. David knew by himself he had no power whatsoever. He was, he was the one dead in that story. And so I think it's only fitting and appropriate that we acknowledge that in and of ourselves we have zero capacity to do the next right thing. So he says, we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. And then he just simply makes a, a simple acknowledgement. Um, the last part of that verse, and I really like this. He says, neither know we what to do. He says, neither know we what to do. I, I don't know. God, I don't know. I don't have the answers. And I think we need to be careful that we come to God with no answers. We have to be very careful we come to God. So many times we come to God with the answers and God says, okay, help yourself. And we say, see, I think God said. Well, was it really God that said or was it me that said? We need to come to God. Neither know we what to do. But he has the right response and I'm, I'm, I'm breaking this up you know, as we go. But he says, but our eyes are upon thee. Can I, can, I, can I really do that? I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Powerful. Where is my confidence? And number seven, and I, and I, love, this, I love this response we see in verse 18. 
And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. You know what? Was the battle done? Was the game over? Had, had, had victories been won? You know what? Nothing had happened yet. They hadn't done, they had not moved forward in, in, in this battle. There was, there was no physical victories won. And yet, look at their response. Jehoshaphat worshiped. When he came before an almighty God and he recognized who God was, he recognized who he was, and everybody was put in their proper place. And everybody came before God together. And they prayed in unity for a common cause, for a common purpose. And they were united. And what did it do? It brought them to worship. And people worshiped. And the, the, just the amazing, phenomenal thing is that the battle wasn't over. They hadn't, even, they hadn't even fought the battle yet, and yet they came together and worshiped. I just think that's, that's incredible. But that's the way it is for us as we really come before God. And even though we still have the battle yet to face, we fall down before God in worship, our only, our only response, appropriate response that we could have before the battle's even fought. We worship. God will reign. Let's worship him in all. Let's allow God to reign. And number eight, Jehoshaphat believed and obeyed, and we see this in verses 20 through 22. And the first thing we see in verse 20, and they arose early in the morning and went. I like, the, I like what we're seeing here. Jehoshaphat believed and obeyed. He simply did the next right thing then. He believed and obeyed. They moved forward. In the book of James, we see belief is important, but it's not enough to simply say we believe. We have to actually show we believe. Without obedience, we have no faith. We could see, we could look at the example of Mary and Martha when Lazarus died and, and some, of the, some of the actions that they, that they um, did. John eleven twenty two speaks of belief. It says, but I know that even now whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. And I forget now if that was, that was Mary or Martha there speaking that said, but I know she expressed belief. There was belief. But then skipping far ahead to uh, verse 41, we see obedience. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. So consider in the, in the situation with Lazarus, a phenomenal thing, a man that had been dead for four years come back to life like nobody can do this. And if they had said, yes, we believe, God, that you can do this, but they refused to obey and roll away the stone, what kind of belief would that be? How is our obedience? Does it actually, do we actually show that we believe? So Jehoshaphat believed and obeyed. And then number nine, Jehoshaphat was rewarded. You see this in verses 23 through 25, and then also in verse 30. And we see the, the people fought against each other. It says they didn't even, they didn't. It says they destroyed one another, um, the, uh, the enemy, and they, uh, they fell down. And there was 
There was much spoil. Like there was a lot of reward in verse 25. What they're saying is God took care of the battle. God just, God took it. And then in verse 25, there's a lot of reward. So much in abundance. I just love the very last phrase in verse 25. It was so much. Have you ever experienced God do win victories? Not, not you, but God. And God simply allowed you to be part of the story. It was so much. I just like that. I just like that phrase in there. It was so much. Can we say that we have experienced God in such a powerful way where it was just so much? The reward was so great. So massive. More than they could carry away. More than we can really grasp. That's the way God wants to work. Jehoshaphat was rewarded. God's victories are real and complete. When we seek God in our legitimate fear and inability, God gives victory and rest. And look on verse 30. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest round about. Wow. It was quiet, and there was rest. That's incredible. And then the last point, number 10, Jehoshaphat glorified God's name to all those around him. And we see this in verses 28 and 29. This great victory, and it wasn't just something that Jehoshaphat in his, by himself um, rejoiced. It wasn't that he took any glory to himself. It wasn't him. But it says, And they came to Jerusalem with psalteries and harps and trumpets unto the house of the Lord. What better place to go? And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they had heard that the Lord fought against the enemies of Israel. Clearly, all those around, from the next county over to the next state over to far and wide, the people rejoiced in the power of God, and they were, they were afraid of the power of God. It was huge. It was tremendous. It says nothing here about the power of Jehoshaphat. It says nothing about Jehoshaphat have, having have, you know, won this battle. But somehow, very clearly, all those around understood that it was that it was God, and God moved in a powerful way. Can that, can that happen in our own lives, to where those around us, as they observe us, they say, wow, that's the power of God. That's not, that's not any one individual. There's no way that can be Ryan. There's no way that can be, there's something greater. It's the power of God lived out in a life. Do we experience this kind of victory in our own lives so that all the people around glorify God's name. Power in a prayer of faith. And, it's, and we can't really have that prayer of faith unless we have that life.